Section twenty two of The South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The South Pole by Royald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section twenty two. Volume two. Chapter ten. The Start for the Pole. Part two. On the following day we were already in sight of the large pressure ridges on the east, which we had seen for the first time on the second depot journey between 81st degree and 82nd degree south, and this showed that the atmosphere must be very clear. We could not see any greater number than the first time, however. From our experience of beacons built of snow, we could see that if we built such beacons now, on our way south, there would be splendid marks of for our return journey. We therefore decided to adapt this system of landmarks to the greatest possible extent. We built in all 150 beacons six feet high, and used in their construction 9,000 blocks, cut out of the snow with specially large snow knives. In each of them was deposited a paper, giving the number and position of the beacon, and indicating the distance and the direction to be taken to reach the next beacon to the north. It may appear that my prudence was exaggerated, but it always seemed to me that one could not be too careful on this endless, uniform surface. If we lost our way here, it would be difficult enough to reach home. Besides which, the building of these beacons had other advantages, which we could all see and appreciate. Every time we stopped to build one, the dogs had a rest, and they wanted this, if they were to keep up the pace. We erected the first beacon in 80 degrees, 23 minutes south. To begin with, we contented ourselves with putting them up at every 13th or 15th kilometer. On the 29th, we shot the first dog, Hansen's Bone. He was too old to keep up, and was only a hindrance. He was placed in depot under a beacon, and was a great joy to us, or rather to the dogs, later on. On the same day we reached the second important point, the depot in 81st degree south. Our course took us very slightly to the east of it. The small pieces of packing case that had been used as marks on each side of the depot could be seen a long way off. On a subsequent examination they showed no sign of snowfall. They stood just as they had been put in. In the neighborhood of the depot we crossed two quite respectable crevices. They were apparently filled up, and caused us no trouble. We reached the depot at 2 p.m. Everything was in the best of order. The flag was flying, and hardly looked as if it had been up a day, although it had now been waving there for nearly eight months. The drifts round the depot were about one and a half feet high. The next day was brilliant, calm and clear. The sun really baked the skin of one's face. We put all our skin clothing out to dry. A little rhyme will always form at the bottom of a sleeping bag. We also availed ourselves of this good opportunity to determine our position and check our compasses. They proved to be correct. We replaced the provisions we had consumed on the way and resumed our journey on October 31st. There was a thick fog next morning and very disagreeable weather. Perhaps we felt it more after the previous fine day. When we passed this way for the first time going south, 
Hansen's dogs had fallen into a crevice, but it was nothing to speak of, otherwise we had no trouble. Nor did we expect at any this time. But in these regions, what one least expects frequently happens. The snow was loose and the going heavy. From time to time we crossed a narrow crevice. Once we saw through the fog a large open hole. We could not have been very far from it, or we should not have seen it. The weather was so thick. But all went well till we had come thirteen and a half miles. Then Hansen had to cross a crevice a yard wide, and, in doing it, he was unlucky enough to catch the point of his ski in the traces of a hindmost dogs, and fall right across the crevice. This looked unpleasant. The dogs were across and a foot or two on the other side, but the sledge was right over the crevice, and had twisted as Hansen fell, so that a little more would bring it into line with the crevice, and then, of course, down it would go. The dogs had quickly scented the fact that their lord and master was for the moment incapable of administering a confirmation, and they did not let slip the golden opportunity. Like a lot of roaring tigers, the whole team set upon each other and fought till the hair flew. This naturally produced short, sharp jerks at the traces, so that the sledge worked round more and more, and at the same time the dogs, in the heat of the combat, were coming nearer and nearer to the brink. If this went on, all was irretrievably lost. One of us jumped the crevice, went into the middle of the struggling team, and, fortunately, got them to stop. At the same time, whisting through a line to Hansen and hauled him out of his unpleasant position. Although, I thought to myself as we went on, I wonder whether Hansen did not enjoy the situation. Stretched across a giddy abyss, with this prospect of slipping down it at any moment, that was just what he would like. We secured the sledge, completed our seventeen miles, and camped. From eighty-first degree south we began to erect beacons at every nine kilometers. The next day we observed the lowest temperature of the whole of this journey, minus thirty point one degree Fahrenheit. The wind was south-southeast, but not very strong. It did not feel like summer all the same. We now adopted the habit which we kept up all the way to the south, of taking our lunch while building the beacon that lay halfway in our day's march. It was nothing very luxurious. Three or four dry oatmeal biscuits. That was all. If one wanted a drink, one could mix snow with the biscuit, bread and water. It is a diet that is not much sought after in our native latitudes, but latitude makes a very great difference in this world. If anybody had offered us more bread and water, we should gladly have accepted it. That day we crossed the last crevice for a long time to come, and it was only a few inches wide. The surface looked grand ahead of us. It went in very long, almost imperceptible undulations. We could only notice them by the way in which the beacons we put up often disappeared rather rapidly. On November the 2nd we had a gale from the south with heavy snow. The going was very stiff, but the dogs got the sledges along better than we expected. The temperature rose, as usual, with a wind from this quarter, plus 14 degrees Fahrenheit. It was a pleasure to be out in such a temperature, although it did blow a little. The day after we had a light breeze from the north. The heavy going of the day before had completely disappeared. Instead of it, we had the best surface one could desire, and it made our dogs break into a brisk gallop. 
That was the day we were to reach the depot in 82 degrees south. But as it was extremely thick, our chances of doing so were small. In the course of the afternoon, the distance was accomplished, but no depot was visible. However, our range of vision was nothing to boast of, ten sledge lengths, not more. The most sensible thing to do under the circumstances was to camp and wait till it cleared. At four o'clock next morning the sun broke through. We let it get warm and dispersed the fog and then went out. What a morning it was, radiantly clear and mild. So still, so still lay the mighty desert before us, level and white on every side. But no, there in the distance the level was broken. There was a touch of color on the white. The third important point was reached, the extreme outpost of civilization. Our last depot lay before us. That was unspeakable relief. The victory now seemed half won. In the fog we had come about three and a half miles too far to the west, but we now saw that if we had continued our march the day before, we should have come right into our line of flags. There they stood, flag after flag, and the little strip of black clothes seemed to wave quite proudly, as though it claimed credit for the way in which it had discharged its duty. Here, at the depot in 81st degree south, there was hardly a sign of snowfall. The drift round the depot had reached the same height as there, one and a half feet. Clearly the same conditions of weather had prevailed all over this region. The depot stood as we had made it, and the sledge as we had left it. Falling snow and drift had not been sufficient to cover even this. The little drift that there was offered an excellent place for the tent, being hard and firm. We at once set about the work that had to be done. First, Uranus was sent into the next world, and although he had always given us the impression of being thin and bony, it was now seen that there were masses of fat along his back. He would be much appreciated when we reached here on the return. Yala did not look as if she would fulfill the conditions, and we gave her another night. The dog's pemmican in the depot was just enough to give the dogs a good feed and load up the sledges again. We were so well supplied with all other provisions that we were able to leave a considerable quantity behind for the return journey. Next day we stayed here, to give the dogs a thorough rest for the last time. We took advantage of the fine weather to dry our outfit and check our instruments. When evening came we were all ready, and now we could look back with satisfaction to the good work of the autumn. We had fully accomplished what we aimed at, namely, transferring our base from 78th degree, 38 minutes, to 82nd degree, thus. Jala had to follow Uranus, they were both laid on the top of the depot, beside eight little ones that never saw the light of day. During our stay here we decided to build beacons at every fifth kilometer, and to lay down depots at every degree of latitude. Although the dogs were drawing the sledges easily at present, we knew well enough that in the long run they would find it hard work if they were always to have heavy weights to pull. The more we could get rid of, and the sooner we could begin to do so, the better. On November the 6th, at 8 a.m., we left 82nd degree south. Now the unknown lay before us. Now our work began in earnest. The appearance of the barrier was the same everywhere, flat, with a splendid surface. 
At the first beacon we put up we had to shoot Lucy. We were sorry to put an end to this beautiful creature, but there was nothing else to be done. Her friends, Karenius, Sauen, and Schwartz, sculled up at the beacon where she lay as they passed, but duty called, and the whip sang dangerously near them, though they did not seem to hear it. We had now extended our daily march to twenty-three miles. In this way we should do a degree in three days. On the seventh we decided to stop for a day's rest. The dogs had been picking up wonderfully every day, and were now at the top of their condition as far as health and training went. With the greatest ease they covered the day's march at a pace of seven and a half kilometers, four miles and two-thirds an hour. As for ourselves, we never had to move a foot. All we had to do was to let ourselves be towed. The same evening we had to put an end to the last of our ladies, else. She was Hessel's pride and the ornament of his team, but there was no help for it. She was also placed on the top of a beacon. When we halted that evening in 82 degrees 20 minutes south, we saw on the southwestern horizon several heavy masses of drab-colored cloud, such as are usually to be seen over land. We could make out no land that evening, however, but when we came out next morning and directed our glasses to that quarter, the land lay there, lofty and clear in the morning sun. We were now able to distinguish several summits, and to determine that this was the land extending southeastward from Birdmore Glacier to South Victoria Land. Our course had been true south all the time. At this spot we were about 250 miles to the east of Beardmore Glacier. Our course would continue to be true south. The same evening, November the 8th, we reached 83 degrees south by dead reckoning. The noon altitude next day gave 83 degrees one minute south. The depot we built here contained provisions for five men and twelve dogs for four days. It was made square, six feet each way, of hard, solid blocks of snow. A large flag was placed on the top. That evening a strange thing happened. Three dogs deserted, going northward on our old tracks. They were Lucy's favorites, and had probably taken it into their heads that they ought to go back and look after their friend. It was a great loss to us all, but especially to Bjaland. They were all three first-rate animals, and among the best we had. He had to borrow a dog from Hansen's team, and if he did not go quite so smoothly as before, he was still able to keep up. On the tenth we got a bearing of the mountain chain, right down in south by west true. Each day we drew considerably nearer the land, and could see more and more of its details. Mighty peaks, each loftier and wilder than the last, rose to heights of 15,000 feet. What struck us all were the bare sides that many of these mountains showed. We had expected to see them far more covered with snow. Mount Fridjof Nansen, for example, had quite a blue-black look. Only quite at the summit was it crowned by a mighty hood of ice that raised its shining top to some 15,000 feet. Further to the south rose Mount Don Pedro Christofferson. It was more covered with snow, but the long, gabled summit was to a great extent bare. Still farther south, Mounts Alice Weddell, Jarlsberg, Alice Glade, and Roosegate came in sight, all snow-clad from peak to base. I do not think I have ever seen a more beautiful or wilder landscape. 
even from where we were, we seemed to be able to see a way up from several places. There lay Liv's glacier, for instance, which would undoubtedly afford a good and even ascent, but it lay too far to the north. It is of enormous extent and would prove interesting to explore. Crown Prince Olaf's mountains looked less promising, but they also lay too far to the north. A little to the west of south lay an apparently good way up. The mountains nearest the barrier did not seem to offer any great obstruction. What one might find later between Mounts Pedro Christofferson and Fridjof Nansen was not easy to say. On the 12th we reached 84th degree south. On that day we made the interesting discovery of a chain of mountains running to the east. This, as it appeared from the spot where we were, formed a semicircle, where it joined the mountains of South Victoria land. This semicircle lay true south, and our course was directed straight towards it. In the depot in 84th degree south, we left, besides the usual quantity of provisions for five men and twelve dogs for four days, a can of paraffin, holding seventeen litres, about thirty-four gallons. We had abundance of matches, and could therefore distribute them over all the depots. The barrier continued as flat as before, and the going was as good as it could possibly be. We had thought that a day's rest would be needed by the dogs, for every degree of latitude, but this proved superfluous. It looked as if they could no longer be tired. One or two had shown signs of bad feet, but were now perfectly well. Instead of losing strength, the dogs seemed to become stronger and more active every day. Now they, too, had sighted the land, and the black mass of Mount Fridge of Nansen seemed specially to appeal to them. Hansen often had hard work to keep them in the right course. Without any longer stay, then, we left 84th degree south the next day and steered for the bay ahead. That day we went twenty-three miles in thick fog and saw nothing of the land. It was hard to have to travel thus blindly of an unknown coast, but we could only hope for better weather. During the previous night we had heard, for a change, a noise in the ice. It was nothing very great and sounded like scattered infantry fire, a few rifle shots here and there underneath our tent. The artillery had not come up yet. We took no notice of it. So I heard one man say in the morning, Blessed if I didn't think I got a whack on the air last night. I could witness that it had not cost him his sleep, as that night he had very nearly snored us all out of the tent. During the forenoon we crossed a number of apparently newly formed crevasses, most of them only about an inch wide. There had thus been a small local disturbance occasioned by one of the numerous small glaciers on land. On the following night all was quiet again, and we never afterwards heard the slightest sound. On November 14th we reached 84 degree, 40 minutes south. We were now rapidly approaching land. The mountain range on the east appeared to turn north-eastward. Our line of ascent, which we had chosen long ago, and now had our eyes fixed upon as we went, would take us a trifle to the west of south but so little that the digression was of no account. The semicircle we saw to the south made a more disquieting impression, and looked as if it would offer great irregularities. On the following day the character of the surface began to change. 
Great wave-like formations seemed to roll higher and higher as they approached the land, and in one of the troughs of these we found the surface greatly disturbed. At some bygone times, immense fissures and chasms would have rendered its passage practically impossible, but now they were all drifted up, and we had no difficulty in crossing. That day, November the 15th, we reached 85th degree south, and camped at the top of one of these swelling waves. The valley we were to cross next day was fairly broad, and rose considerably on the other side. On the west, in the direction of the nearest land, the undulation rose to such a height that it concealed a great part of the land from us. During the afternoon we built the usual depot, and continued our journey on the following day. As we had seen from our camping ground, it was an immense undulation that we had to traverse. The ascent on the other side felt uncomfortably warm in the powerful sun, but it was no higher than three hundred feet by the aneroid. From the top of this wave the barrier stretched away before us, flat at first, but we could see disturbances of the surface in the distance. Now we are going to have some fun in getting to land, I thought for it seemed very natural that the barrier, hemmed in as it was here, would be much broken up. The disturbances we had seen consisted of some big old crevices, which were partly filled up. We avoided them easily. Now there was another deep depression before us, with a correspondingly high rise on the other side. We went over it capitally. The surface was absolutely smooth, without a sign of fissure or hole anywhere. Then we shall get them when we are on the top, I thought. It was rather stiff work uphill, and accustomed as we were to slopes. I stretched my neck more and more to get a view. At last we were up, and what a sight it was that met us. Not an irregularity, not a sign of disturbance. Quietly and evenly the ascent continued. I believe that we were then already above land. The large crevasses that we had avoided down below probably formed the boundary. The hypsometer gave 930 feet above the sea. We were now immediately below the ascent, and made the final decision of trying it here. This being settled, we pitched our camp. It was still early in the day, but we had a great deal to arrange before the morrow. Here we should have to overhaul our whole supply of provisions, take with us what was absolutely necessary for the remainder of the trip, and leave the rest behind in depot. First, then, we camped, worked out our position, fed the dogs and let them loose again, and then went into our tent to have something to eat and go through the provision box. We had now reached one of the most critical points of our journey. Our plan had now to be laid so that we might not only make the ascent as easily as possible, but also get through to the end. Our calculations had to be made carefully, and every possibility taken into account. As with every decision of importance, we discussed the matter jointly. The distance we had before us from this spot to the pole and back was 683 miles. Reckoning with the ascent that we saw before us, with other unforeseen obstructions, and finally, with the certain factor that the strength of our dogs would be gradually reduced to a fraction of what it was now, we decided to take provisions and equipment for sixty days on the sledges, and to leave the remaining supplies, enough for thirty days, and outfit and depot. 
we calculated from the experience we had had that we ought to be able to reach this point again with twelve dogs left we now had forty-two dogs our plan was to take all the forty-two up to the plateau there twenty-four of them were to be slaughtered and the journey continued with three sledges and eighteen dogs of these last eighteen it would be necessary in our opinion to slaughter six in order to bring the other twelve back to this point as the number of dogs grew less the sledges would become lighter and lighter and when the time came of reducing their number to twelve we should only have two sledges left this time again our calculations came out approximately right it was only in reckoning the number of days that we made a little mistake we took eight days less that the tame allowed the number of dogs agreed exactly we reached this point again with twelve after the question had been well discussed and each had given his opinion we went out to get the repacking done it was lucky the weather was so fine otherwise this taking stock of provisions might have been a bitter piece of work all our supplies were in such a form that we could count them instead of weighing them our pemmican was in rations of two kilogram one pound and twelve ounces the chocolate was divided into small pieces as chocolate always is so that we knew what each piece weighed our milk powder was put up in bags of a hundred and two ounces just enough for a meal our biscuits possessed the same property they could be counted but this was a tedious business as they were rather small on this occasion we had to count six thousand biscuits our provisions consisted only of these four kinds and the combination turned out right enough we did not suffer from a craving either for fat or sugar though the want of these substances is very commonly felt on such journeys as ours in our biscuits we had an excellent product consisting of oatmeal sugar and dried milk sweetmeats jam fruit cheese etc we had left behind at framheim we took our reindeer skin clothing for which we had had no use as yet on the sledges we were now coming on to the high ground and it might easily happen that it would be a good thing to have we did not forget the temperature of minus forty degrees fahrenheit that shackleton had experienced in eighty eight degrees south and if we met with the same we could hold out a long while if we had the skin clothing otherwise we had not very much in our bags the only change we had with us was put on here and the old clothes hung out to air we reckoned that by the time we came back in a couple of months they would be sufficiently aired and we could put them on again as far as i remember the calculation proved correct we took more food gear than anything else if one's feet are well shod one can hold out a long time when all this was finished three of us put on our ski and made for the nearest visible land this was a little peak a mile and three quarters away mount betty it did not look lofty or imposing but was nevertheless one thousand feet above the sea small as it was it became important to us as it was there we got all our geological specimens running on ski felt quite strange although i had now covered three hundred and eighty five miles on them but we had driven the whole way and were somewhat out of training we could feel this too as we went up the slope that afternoon after mount betty the ascent became rather steep but the surface was even and the going splendid so we got on fast first we came up a smooth mountainside about one thousand and two hundred feet above the sea 
then over a little plateau, after that another smooth slope like the first, and then down a rather long flat stretch, which after a time began to rise very gradually, until it finally passed into small glacier formations. Our reconnaissance extended to these small glaciers. We had ascertained that the way was practicable, as far as we were able to see. We had gone about five and a half miles from the tent, and ascended two thousand feet. On the way back we went gloriously. The last two slopes down to the barrier gave us all the speed we wanted. Bjaland and I had decided to take a turn round by Mount Betty, for the sake of having real bare ground under our feet. We had not felt it since Madeira in September 1910, and now we were in November 1911. No sooner said than done. Bjaland prepared for an elegant telemark swing, and executed it in fine style. What I prepared to do, I am still not quite sure. What I did was to roll over, and I did it with great effect. I was very soon on my feet again, and glanced at Bjaland, whether he had seen my tumble. I am not certain. However, I pulled myself together after this unfortunate performance, and remarked casually that it is not so easy to forget what one has once learned. No doubt he thought that I had managed the telemark swing. At any rate, he was polite enough to let me think so. Mount Betty offered no perpendicular crags or deep precipices to stimulate our desire for climbing. We only had to take off our ski, and then we arrived at the top. It consisted of loose screes, and was not an ideal promenade for people who had to be careful of their boots. It was a pleasure to set one's foot on bare ground again, and we sat down on the rocks to enjoy the scene. The rocks very soon made themselves felt, however, and brought us to our feet again. We photographed each other in picturesque attitudes, took a few stones for those who had not yet set foot on bare earth, and strapped on our ski. The dogs, after having been so eager to make for bare land when they first saw it, were now not the least interested in it. They lay on the snow and did not go near the top. Between the bare ground and the snow surface there was bright blue-green ice, showing that at times there was running water here. The dogs did what they could to keep up with us on the way down, but they were soon left behind. On our return we surprised our comrades with presents from the country, but I fear they were not greatly appreciated. I could hear such words as, Norway stones, heaps of them, and I was able to put them together and understand what was meant. The presents were put in depot as not absolutely indispensable on the southern journey. By this time the dogs had already begun to be very voracious. Everything that came in their way disappeared, whips, ski bindings, lashings, etc., were regarded as delicacies. If one put down anything for a moment, it vanished. With some of them this voracity went so far that we had to chain them. End of section 22 End of chapter 10 The Start for the Pole